Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you. And um, we are well into May, which I'm so excited about because May and into June are my favorite months of the year because the days are longer, things are getting warmer. And then you all know that when June 21st hits, I just get depressed because the days start getting shorter. And I'm like, why in the front end of the summer are we already shortening the days? So that's a whole other conversation altogether. Okay, we'll get into that at a future date. Right now, later on in the show for our inbox, we have a listener who's concerned about her friend dating someone because the boyfriend is extremely demanding and it is bothering our listener. And she wants to know how can she encourage her friend on whether or not she needs to reevaluate this relationship and what it looks like. Um, She's pretty distressed about it, so one of our counselors is going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture, if you have ever listened to the Ask Pastor John podcast, uh, that is John Piper, you have heard the voice of Tony Renke. Well, he's going to join us today to talk about how Christians should approach the topic of technology in today's world. And this isn't just about social media. We're actually going to tread into the spaces of like like the metaverse, NFTs, space travel, <laughs> all this stuff that you can't like look up specifically in the Bible. So how do you actually navigate it with a Christian worldview and some, hopefully some measure of wisdom in that? So wait for that. Okay, here we are for our roundtable. We are going to have a fun conversation. I just mentioned that uh, we're in mid-May. We are certainly well into wedding season right now. And uh, we want to talk about the different stages of planning a wedding. And I have got Jackson and Clara Greer. Hey, y'all. Here, who not long ago planned a wedding and actually successfully completed it. And Hannah... Hey, Hannah. Hey. Who you all know, she used to be part of our team, and now she's still here at Focus on the Family, but on a different team, but also not too long ago planned a wedding. So this is going to be fun to get some good wisdom from y'all. And in fact, Hannah, you have to kind of intro this because this really, the heart of this conversation was your idea because you had talked to me about um, this whole trend of people really talking about weddings and even getting engaged long before engagement questions like the question had been popped. (laughs) In fact, I just talked to someone today who was like, yeah, we've already talked a lot about getting engaged. And I'm like, didn't that used to be like a surprise? And now people are all like, let's plan on when we're going to talk about getting engaged. And it's like everything's all charted out. Um, But give us a little background for the conversations that you've had, Hannah, because I think that'll help us springboard into what we're going to talk about today of just some of the like orchestration of wedding details and planning weddings in the process. Yeah, I think what really sparked the conversation for me was um, I had a lot of friends from college that are in serious dating relationships and in catching up with them, they're like, oh, I already have a wedding date in a wedding venue and like our photographer, but he's going to propose like, I don't know, in a couple of months or in (laughs) six months or something like that. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. Uh, It just was kind of shocking to me because I was like, oh, there's there was no question that was asked. There was no promise that had been made um, to eventually fulfill a covenant in marriage. And I think it's just this contrast between us as Christian, young Christians wanting a short engagement 
to stay pure, to kind of get on track with life. Like, okay, we just want to be married kind of thing. I think most young Christians would say they want a short engagement. Mm -hmm. Um, But then culture, I think, has this huge like setup of weddings. Like I need to book my venue two years in advance. I need to get my dress a year in advance. And it's like, yeah, those things do have timelines. But yeah, I think weddings in our culture are, are, I mean, they're really big and they're planned far in the future. And so there's kind of a contrast between planning a wedding that far in advance, but then being like, oh, we only want to actually be engaged for three months. So it's kind of a particular issue, but I had a number of friends that were in that situation that I thought was kind of interesting. Well, and it's true. And I would love, you know, Jackson and Clara, you to weigh in on this, you know, probably having friends in the same space and having conversations around this, because it feels like in the, you know, in today's culture, you either have to be an event planner or you better be able to afford an event planner to just put the moving pieces together for a wedding. If you're just not showing up at your childhood church and going to the fellowship hall for some cake, I mean, if you're doing anything that involves something beyond that, there are like skills involved. And like you said, Hannah, timing and whatever. What, you know, maybe Claire and Jackson speak to that a little bit, just some of the pressures around expectations for wedding planning. Yeah, and absolutely right when you kind of transition into the expectations. Like that's where so many people land because no wedding, no two weddings are the same, mm-hmm. right? And a variety of different people can have their input in a wedding. But at the end of the day, it's the husband and wife, the future husband and wife that are at the center of the wedding, get to make the decisions about the wedding. But there are so many people that have positive influence mm-hmm. on the decision making and the planning process. Like Clara and I would not have been able to pull off our wedding without the people that surrounded us and were our support group. Um, family first, but our wedding planner saved the day so many times. Mm-hmm. We, we did go with a wedding planner, mm-hmm. even though both of us would probably self-prescribe ourselves as organizers and people who care about organization. But to have that kind of third-party, unbiased, um, objective point of view there the whole time mm-hmm. was instrumental in achieving kind of our vision and what we wanted um, and eventually what it turned out to be. Yeah. And there's so many things that you wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. And like our wedding planner, we'd text her the next day and be like, hey, what do we need to be doing with this? And she'd already have it done. And like, you don't, you don't need to worry. And it yeah, it really relieved awesome. a lot of stress. Yeah. Okay. So what, like for the three of you, did the traditional timeline happen? Like, did you, Clara, did you know that he was going to propose or did it come as any kind of a surprise to you? I mean, I think there are very few women there that don't want any idea that this guy wants to marry them. Like clearly some kind of conversations have to happen where I feel like in our grandparents' generation, it was just like, oh my goodness, he asked me to marry him and I was so taken off guard. You know, like (laughs) what in the world? How is that even possible? Um, But what, as far as timing of like, the question was popped. I got a ring. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, let's have this conversation. What elements of that conversation had already happened for you all personally versus what still had to happen? Yeah. So um, I don't really know when in our dating relationship, it was like in the later half of having been dating, but um, we had a conversation about like, hey, what's next? And like, I want to marry you. And um, Jackson actually tricked me into thinking we were getting married or like engaged at least later than we were, which was good because I don't know, it just was, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of took your mind off of the when of it um, and was able, like we were able to kind of ease into the premarital counseling um, even before we were engaged and kind of gather that that support group that was around us 
Um, that was more on my end. Clara just glanced at me. <laughs> um, that was more on my end because I was able to talk with her father in a really intimate and special way to get kind of his blessing and his thoughts on the stage of life that we were entering into okay. um, to kind of navigate and decide, is this the right time? And then talk with my dad. And um, and then that really gave me the confidence and the assurance to, okay, this is now I get to concoct my plan, right, for, okay. for how I want to propose. So by the time you actually got engaged then was it just like boots on the ground running as far yeah. as like, now we got to pick a date, we need to make this happen, pieces have to fall into place? Yeah, I mean, I think the weekend we got engaged, we picked our wedding date and yeah. started looking at wedding venues the next week. Okay, which yeah. clearly, to Hannah's point, has to happen because now it's like stuff is booked crazy out. I mean, if you have, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about the positive influences in wedding planning. Sometimes there are not positive influences where like all of a sudden a mom or an aunt or a grandma is taking over and they have all these expectations. And it's like, well, here are the 600 people in our family that we want you to invite. And you're like, whoa, hold the phone. Um, Hannah, how about for you guys? What was the timeline you had to work on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was very similar to Jackson and Clara. Actually, we kind of had the conversation of like, you know, what's next? Um, Right out of college, like we were kind of in a transition phase to begin with. And so we knew that kind of marriage was the next thing. And we had talked about that. And um, he had even asked like what kind of ring that I liked. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had kind of showed him a little bit, but he went and like picked out the ring all by himself. And the engagement was a total surprise or him asking me to marry him was a total surprise. And then, yeah, from there, and we got uh, married seven months after that. And yeah, there were some venues that didn't even have dates um, mm-hmm. within the year that we got engaged in February. And there were some venues that, yeah, were totally booked for the whole year. And so it kind of narrowed down yeah, that, um, the option. It helps inform your, where yeah. you're going and what you're doing. Yeah, so, okay. absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that, about getting back to the expectation question, because I think there are a lot of women in particular, not to be totally stereotypical, but let's just be honest, who, I mean, there are some women who've been planning weddings since they were 12. Some are just like, I don't know, someone just tell me what to do, you know, and then there's all in between there. So what... Going into when when the details started having to fall in place, how much or how little on the same page were you, bride and groom, and then how much did you have to be sensitive to expectations of family, of friends, I mean, the conversations around how many attendants do you have, who gets picked, who's jettisoned out. I mean, those are all really touchy situations. Um, Where did you find you guys were on the spectrum of being like-minded in some of those things? I feel like there was very little conflict between us, which was a huge blessing. It was like, hey, I'm thinking this. And he was like, yeah, me too. Great. And then we'd move forward from there. But um, something that was not difficult, but um, a little bit more of a challenge was like listening to everyone who had an opinion mm-hmm. and choosing to like listen first and make sure that they felt heard before saying like, yeah, we're going to do that or maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, like the respect that you um, continue to build on like with family is just so important and like way more important than the decision that's being made, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making people feel heard, especially 
emotionally invested people like moms and sisters and that kind of stuff. Okay. How about you, Hannah? Yeah. Luckily, there was not any conflict between Gabriel and I about what we kind of envisioned about the wedding day. And um, our families were really supportive, like being like, hey, I'm here to help. But um, I don't it's your day and it's you guys's day. And so we don't want to step into that. But yeah, I think I had to kind of curb a lot of my own expectations because Obviously, when you're dreaming about a wedding, a budget is not a thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but boots on the ground, um, it very much is. And it kind of can help you decide a lot of decisions. And so I had to curb a lot of my expectations as it came to like social media. Hmm. Like I could look up inspiration for like, okay, bridesmaids dresses. What do I think about that? But kind of staying on those social media platforms or really soaking into all of that I found was not um, super healthy for things that were actually practical for our wedding. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, and it is funny when you're comparing, I mean, when you're looking in, whether it's social media or magazines or whatever, and you're seeing like a a celebrity example of a wedding, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, let me pare that down to my budget. (laughs) You know, some things clearly have to go. And I remember like when I was in a friend's wedding not too long ago that where she, um, and you know, she married in her early 30s. And so at that point, it was kind of like, you know, it felt like she didn't have as much contribution maybe from her parents or whatever. It was a lot more on her and her husband to be. But she was shocked at how even for what she considered a simple wedding, the expenses that really ramp up, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe we're not going to have this like separate venue for X, Y, Z or do this or that. And so, yeah, I think that's a big deal to to keep in mind. What would you say, like, what was one of the bigger surprises for you, either good or bad in the whole process as far as like wasn't quite prepared for this? It either pleasantly surprised me or this was a hot mess and I would never wish this on anyone. A pleasant surprise on my end from the guy's perspective. I thought the day of was going to be a lot more hectic than it actually was, which was awesome. And I think that speaks to kind of what I mentioned at the beginning of our wedding planner was phenomenal. And having that person there to kind of take care of a lot of the the fires that I thought we were going to have to put out Mm -hmm. on the day of um, just made those all disappear. And I think what also contributed to that being so smooth in a good way was we identified some roles that we knew would fit the people that were invested the most. Mm. Um, for example, our moms. Like we gave, we knew their strengths. We knew kind of their weaknesses as well when it came to events and what they would get stressed out by or like really excel at. So encouraging them to kind of lean into those strengths and help give them kind of their own little sandbox to play in with the wedding mm-hmm. rather than not setting expectations for them and saying, hey, we want you to do this part of the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, if we hadn't have done that, it would have maybe left too much room open for them to feel like, okay, I have to help with every single thing. Um, Claire did a really good job of kind of delegating and delegating those tasks that we knew we wanted and knew, okay, let's pair up the right person for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, something not necessarily about wedding day, but in the planning process was that I was really excited to like do things um, ourselves. Like, um, okay, on the the week of we're going to make all of our bouquets and like we're going to do our own floral arrangements because I had a couple friends I had a couple friends who had done that and realizing like that's not practical and that was really hard for us or for me specifically but Mm -hmm. um, it ended up being really sweet and like we empowered some of our friends to do them Mm -hmm. and that ended up being really fun and that was definitely not expected so yeah but like letting go of control of elements that you wish you could have your hands on or oversight of and stuff that's tricky yeah it's good 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think something that was really sweet was all of the support that Gabriel and I received just around planning a wedding. Like, I was finishing up college, and so obviously trying to graduate and things like that, I I would get easily overwhelmed with a to-do list. Um, But my sister in particular was really good about being like, oh, yeah, let me take that off your plate. I can do that, and I know, you know, kind of what you want with that, so let me take over. Mm -hmm. Um, That was really sweet, and I guess I just didn't think about that before. Um, But something that was kind of tricky, I... I naturally am kind of a people pleaser. And so I think listening to everyone's opinions, specifically kind of like around the budget of like, well, this is kind of like the best deal maybe for like floral arrangements, like a good budget is 1500 bucks. Uh, but what we can afford is something different. And so, yeah, I think that was, I kind of had to take note of my people pleasing tendencies and really, mm-hmm. yeah, think practically. Okay. So in light of that, I mean, obviously having to pick and choose, whether it's um, the involvement of certain people, whether it's budget related stuff, what would you say is, you know, looking looking back in hindsight, an absolute priority that you would recommend for people like don't miss this, definitely prioritize this. And it could be, you know, something budget wise, it could be just prioritizing it time wise or in your schedule or make sure to include this. And what's something that like, we thought this would be much more important than it really was in the in the bigger scheme of things. What would you what would you say definitely keep in the planning or in the prioritization and what is like nope? I would recommend taste testing as many cake shops as you can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just for the sake of getting a lot of cake. Okay. No, good. but but that was a fun little taste testing cake was at times like that that fun activity that helped balance out the more stressful ones like yeah. oh my gosh every photographer's booked on our weekend like what uh. do we do or man i really wanted this dress or this tie and it's not coming in on time like okay. those details that start to make you stress out a little bit cake yeah. was a fun one for us <laughs> yeah. we also brought along some of our family too to one of them yeah. and that was cool um but a more practical one that maybe this this will connect with some guys that are a part of the conversation so girls if you're listening tell your guy um this tip but we we had our budget we had our number and then we made the conscious decision to spend lower than that, knowing that we had a little bit of cushion at the end Mm. so that once we got to that number that was kind of our fake number, the lower number, we could look at what we um, really, really wanted. What was that top priority, whether it was a videographer, a photographer, something that we wanted maybe splurge on a little bit more and know that we had that extra cushion money at the end. Mm. And it was just a small detail that we decided on at the beginning, but it opened up this world of possibilities to, for us, it was a videographer and we got to kind of include that at the end. And it was, mm. it was really, really cool. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. I would say a photographer uh, was one of our most important costs. That was something that we set aside at the very beginning to say, this is kind of our non-negotiable. We want a really good photographer. Um, and that's something I'm super grateful for because now we have all of the pictures to look through and, and they're really high quality and we love how they turned out. Additionally, I would say the day of, well, really the weekend of those like special moments and special gifts for your people. So Gabriel and I gave both of our parents gifts and um, the officiant of our wedding, um, a really close mentor of his. Um, and even like our bridesmaids and groomsmen, we really spent time like kind of crafting those gifts to them specifically and writing letters. Um, yeah, I think it, it takes more than two people to get to a wedding day, not just in wedding planning, but in the relationship as a whole. So 
kind of making those things really intentional and special was really important to us. And honestly, like those are the things that I look back on, like those little moments, like exchanging the gifts and and really thinking, yeah, those are some sweet moments that I look back on our wedding weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that I I think that we prioritized a lot that maybe didn't get used. I don't know about y'all's wedding, actually, if, if you had favors, but our favors were just not like taken advantage of, I guess. Like a lot of people didn't take them at the end. So I don't know if it was something easily missed, but I thought that was kind of interesting. What did you have? What were your... We had like little individual coffee bags. Oh, yeah. From our favorite you were coffee me shop. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was... It's I would a, have taken those, yo. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still coffee. got some. Okay. Well, bring them in. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I didn't know you then. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's weird. Yeah. Okay. That people wouldn't be in, into that or not know what to do about that. I know. That. Maybe it was the placement. I don't know. Okay. They just never got... Interesting. Got taken. Okay. Yeah. And when it comes to like your wedding specifically, I think looking at your personalities and kind of figuring out what what parts of the wedding can you make like you like yeah. wh- where can you and your your spouse's future spouse um personalities really shine for us that was the way that we kind of arranged the table setting and created the the names that they would pick up to like find out where they sit mm. um additionally like the way that we designed our programs and things like that like we got some advice to not do programs because they just get thrown away but to us that was a really special way to like show our personality through Mm -hmm. the wedding so for you maybe it's programs maybe it's your your flowers maybe it's something else that you uniquely want to design Um, but take ownership in that like I would encourage you to feel empowered to to find a way that you can you know kind of make your wedding unique and and Mm -hmm. more and fit your personality that's cool as someone who's been in a lot of weddings and has been you know a lot of my family members have gotten married um, one thing that I thought was really cool, my sister did this because, again, it's like some people will hang around like they won't go on their honeymoon right away and they'll like spend time with family. Or I know people who have destination weddings. Sometimes they do that and the whole group is gathered. But my sister and her husband didn't do that. They took off right away for the honeymoon. So it was really cool how we were in charge, a couple of us siblings, of getting all their gifts and storing them and whatever. And then when they came back from their honeymoon, we just had a fun family gathering where they open their gifts and we got to be part of that and you know one it's just great because uh we're like chronically in this stuff for them so they don't have to deal with that and we kind of addressed um thank you notes for them and stuff so that they could write their notes and not have to worry about keeping all the addresses so it was just cool and then it was fun we could hear about the honeymoon at the same time and it wasn't like everyone individually in their business for the following four months of like tell me about that honeymoon you know they got to say it once (laughs) (laughs) and be done with it. And um, so I just thought that was a really clever idea for them to like honor us and feel like we were part of it without us like going on their honeymoon with them, which they would not have allowed. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool. But um, okay, so we only have like just a minute left here, but I would love for you all to just say advice to someone planning a wedding of how to make God first and foremost Leading up to the wedding, the wedding day, make it a worship service instead of just about stuff or about you or about an event or whatever. What would be your number one tip? Holy cow, just soak it in prayer. Like the the whole season of engagement, you're getting to um, not cross boundaries in an inappropriate way, but in a in a spiritual way and in an emotional way that you haven't maybe in seasons of dating and to take advantage of that and honor the Lord in that and pray for your future husband in a really, really special way or your future wife mm-hmm. um, that you didn't get to while you were just dating. And um, remembering that you're planning for 
or you're preparing, excuse me, for your future marriage, not just the wedding day itself, which sounds so cliche, but we found it to be really purposeful um, to just remember that in prayer and uh, pray together and pray for the people who would be in the wedding. Mm -hmm. I was going to say the exact same thing, um, preparing for the marriage more than the wedding day. Um, Obviously, the wedding day is super special, but all the days following, that's all the goodness. Like That's all the richness, I think, of the covenant made on the wedding day. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, praying for it definitely. And yeah, we went through some great premarital counseling, which I know Clara and Jackson did as well. Um, And that really helped us, I think, get the mindset of the bigger view of it's it's more than just the wedding day. Mm-hmm. And for for the guys, like this is the engagement process and then the day of the wedding, more so than ever before, will be the symbolic and practical representation of what it means to be married and to like join in union with another human. Mm-hmm. And so don't don't let that be too serious, but also don't let that fall fall away um, throughout the planning process because getting to serve and listen to, like the, the most important person throughout all of it is going to be your future wife. Mm-hmm. And so serve her, listen to her, make her dream and vision come true because symbolically and practically like that, that is the beginning of getting to spend the rest of your life with, with her. Um, so just take that into mind and like consideration because the, the habits that you start to form even throughout engagement will linger well into those first few years of marriage and, and beyond. Great thoughts, you guys. Thanks so much for sharing your own stories. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Won't stop Folks, well, here we are for this week's culture segment, and I am very privileged to introduce you to Tony Ranke. 
Tony is uh, a bunch of things. We were just chatting a little bit before we started taping. Um, he is specifically the host of the Ask Pastor John podcast, along with John Piper, a senior teacher for Desiring God. Obviously, he's an author, uh, podcast host. He speaks. And uh, the book that we're going to talk about specifically today, even though he's written several, is titled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. And so, Tony, welcome to The Boundless Show. Lisa, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you. Okay, so this is something that here at Boundless, because we're mostly like millennials, now yeah. Gen Zers, you know, folks are pretty native to the technology that we're thinking of. And, uh, you know, when it comes to digital tech, when it comes to the way that we use smartphones, the computer age, all of that, social media and beyond. And clearly, you have written a book because... We need some biblical wisdom in navigating this space. And so I want to kind of start the conversation uh, really with you in a couple different ways here. Um, and this is going to be probably convicting for me. I feel like every time I have a conversation around technology, it's always something weird where I feel like I'm making goals about the way I use tech and stuff, and then I just <laughs> crash and burn or whatever. But yeah. um, you actually, I, I mentioned a biblical lens on this, you actually bring up God's relationship with technology by quoting Isaiah chapter 54 in the book. And I want to kind of start with that because you use it as an example of something that's very specific in God's superintending uh, technology. And so can you kind of talk us through that and why you used it as an example? Yeah, I think uh, Christians don't have a hard time believing that God is sovereign over healing technologies. Um, I think where we get uh, where we struggle is more with uh, technologies that are more and more dangerous. So as you go kind of up the ladder of the more and more potently destructive they are, and you know when we look at the fourteen major sections in the Bible that talk about God's relationship to human innovation, and they're all over the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, which is what I'm trying to do in this book is just lay out sort of the the story of what the Bible tells us, um, what you see in Isaiah 54 is that God has a very special relationship to human war tech and the fact that he actually governs over it. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through agriculture. I want to walk through metallurgy. I want to walk through all of the different technologies that we take for granted now that are explained in the Bible and show God's relationship to them in very concrete ways. Because I think this, this whole conversation has really been dominated for at least the past 100 years by tech dystopians and and by those who are anti-tech in the church. And so uh, typically what we hear is the Tower of Babel story just on repeat. You know, hmm. technology is evil. Technology hmm. is evil. Look at the Tower of Babel. And what I'm trying to do is broaden the discussion, get into the Isaiah 54, 16, those kind of texts, and bring all 14 of those texts, those major sections of Scripture together into one cohesive storyline. And there is a lot of detail to work through. Yeah. Well, you mentioned kind of the difference between like you, you referred to it as healing technology. So yes, most Christians are like, oh my goodness, look what God has done to allow us to come so far yeah. in medicine, in various forms of science and discoveries in all of that. And we're okay with it. And then it's usually like when we talk about, um, you know, digital tech, kind of the evil Silicon Valley, yeah. uh, which yeah. is where I grew up, incidentally. Um, but all of that where we kind of get a little bit hazy. But doesn't it seem, I mean, talk to this because every, you know, every Gen Z are listening right now is like, what? Technology is awesome. I'm not afraid of it, whatever. But it seems like every generation is resistant to something new. And, it, you know, it's always that, whoa, what's this? What are we looking at? I mean, I remember... Yeah. 
what in the world crazy town wasn't it like the mid 90s where the on the today show it was like the hosts were sitting around like what's this thing called the internet yeah. <laughs> you, you watch yeah. it now and you're like that is nuts but really everyone was a little leery of what's going on here so how do you think we can you know for for better or worse make the adjustments that are necessary to understanding technology without freaking out about it, but also, you know, making some rational assumptions about where we yeah. should be applying it in our lives. Yeah, that's that's a great question. We're t- trying to do two things at the same time. One is there's, you know, the church is, has a lot of Luddites, you know, a lot of like anti-tech folks who mm-hmm. need to be helped along to see the, the weaknesses of that position if you just uh, blanket apply that to all technology. And on the other hand, there's people like me who's just an early adopter you know, mm-hmm. I'll adopt any new gadget from Apple, you know? And so I need to take a step, step back and look at my own life and say, like, is this gadget going to help me fulfill my purpose or not? And so I'm trying to do both things in this book. One is to encourage the the Luddites to kind of see the world in a different way. And I'm trying to help the early adopters see that there, there's a way to do um, technology adopting that's more strategic based on what God has called us to do. He's called us to love him with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's really the paradigm of, of what we're here for. And so now now is a question of how do we go into tech stewardship? And um, my fear is because the church conversation has been so dominated by the uh, the pessimistic uh, anti-tech voice that we've never really reached a place where the church has been able to embrace technology as a gift from God and to worship him for it. And because we've never been able to do that, we've never then been able to teach stewardship of what these technologies are for. And as a parent, you know, I wrote 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. That was sort of a deep dive in my own heart to see like what was social media doing to my own heart. And I had to deal with that. But I had to deal with that because I had teenagers coming along and I needed to train them. And what I realized, especially after writing this new book on, on technology, is that what they need from me is not just no's, not just don't use that device, don't adopt that platform, don't download that, stop doing that online. What they need from dad is a vision of what God has called them to do so that they can now view their technologies, their gadgets, everything that God has given us because of his generosity. How do we turn these things now into acts of worship to fulfill God's calling in our lives? And that's where the church has really struggled to reach those levels of gratitude and then stewardship. And and that's really my heart now in this book, you know, dealing with social media, dealing with smartphones, that's important, that's big, we've got to do that. But then we've got to move on and sort of start to get a vision for what God has called us to do and then envisioning ourselves, our people, our our teens, you know, envision them for what God has called them to use those technologies to do in the world. I was just in Silicon Valley, uh, met with 300 students up in Berkeley. Uh, Christians on fire for the Lord, they're being trained to go into Silicon Valley and they're asking questions like, how do, how are we going to be prepared to serve the Lord in Silicon Valley? And so it was a great opportunity to, to stand up and to walk through some of these major tech, uh, passages in tech that are relevant for our age and, and give them a vision for what, what God is calling them to do as they move into San Jose, as they go into Tesla, as they go into, um, SpaceX, as they go into, uh, Facebook, uh, the metaverse. Some of them are going to design the metaverse, you know? So like we need to give um, uh, Christians a, a vision for what God has called them to do in which they can then use their tools to fulfill.
Yeah. Well, let's, you're going to have to give us a couple practical examples of this because here we are, you know, you're talking primarily to, you know, 20 and 30 something, some even a couple years younger who seem to be, you know, they, many of them would probably say, dude, I'm on the forefront of trying to get less tech because I, (laughs) here's what it's gotten me. It's gotten me burnout. It's gotten me a comparison mindset that has me competing with every one of my peers. Uh, Now I'm getting carpal tunnel off of it. You know, so give us an example, Tony, of how in the world, to use your words, uh, the front end of your response, you know, God redeeming this. How is God going to redeem TikTok and even our smartphones for everyday use and to glorify him in in what we're doing? Yeah. So the bigger principle is that every technology that we adopt is a technology that we have to adapt. Mm -hmm. And that's always been true. And sometimes this is an easier principle to show when I go out into like the 19th century and talk (laughs) about like electricity, because then people, it's like less personal when you sort of give some distance there. But right now we're in the, um, the smartphone age. The smartphone is a gift from God. He's given to us. We we can all use it to amazing effect to love others. We can serve others with it. We can destroy ourselves with it as well. And so what we're doing now is we're in the process of trying to confine the smartphone and social media to the parameters of its fruitfulness. So, so we're trying to limit what we do with it. That's basically what we're trying to do now mm-hmm. is limit it to effect. And so then it comes into a question of personal calling. What has God called you to do? Are you a spoken word artist? Are you a, a painter? Are you a photographer? Are you like, w- what is the gifting God has given to you? You can use social media in so many different ways as a pass through to take your gifts to bless others, uh, whether it's art or whatever God has gifted you to do. And so th- this is where we're at right now. We have this tremendous power in the smartphone and we're trying to now limit its uses. So that we can be fruitful and so that we don't just become depressed, isolated, um, you know, feeling the eye strain and bad posture and all the things that come along with overuse of the smartphone. But this is not something unique. This is not something new. It is a very potent technology. But when we found out that certain um, things that we put in our air conditioners was poking holes in the the ozone layer, we changed it. When we found out, um, you know, certain insulation was causing cancer, we changed it out. When we put food additives in and we realized those were cancer causing, we changed it. I mean, Adaptation is just part of the story of human innovation. And right now we're feeling it because we're trying to figure out our smartphones. But this is nothing unique. It's nothing new. Mm -hmm. So how do you encourage us? Like, where do we find the line when it seems like the world is just diving headlong into this and either we need to, like, grab on to the caboose or else be lost? I mean, I, you know, again, I feel like, okay, I'm I'm, going to be a little braggadocious here and a little prideful because I'm like, okay, so, Tony, I actually am doing a couple cryptos. I mean, I feel so current. I feel so. But (laughs) let's talk about like, then I get super grandma, because when people start talking to me about the metaverse and people create, you know, NFTs, and all of a sudden, you're even in crypto, you're you're selling parcels of land and creating avatars and random fake virtual, well, I shouldn't say fake to those adapters, (laughs) virtual art and stuff that's going for 300 grand. What I mean, what does it look like for us? to steward that well when we feel like we're just caught up in it. Yeah, so digital detox are always going to be a helpful way to to step back and say the gifts that God has given me are not my God. I'm not trying to find my um, my acceptance. I'm not trying to find my happiness, my fulfillment in digital media. Um, and so even you know, in crypto, you know, I don't have the stomach for crypto. I tried it. I just don't have the stomach <laughs> for it. I was out in like a month. Um, you're not so, as current as I am, Tony. No, I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through it sometime. Right. No, it's cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so, you know, in 2015, I took a year where I was mainly off social media. And that was for me to sort of uh, inventory what social media had done to my life and done to my heart. And that resulted in the book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And then I kind of changed my focus and focused more on Hollywood and sort of big macro spectacles of the digital um, age of spectacles, the attention economy that we live in. And that became a book called um, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And in that book, basically what I come to the conclusion of is it's not necessarily the, the sinfulness of media that was the biggest uh, uh, concern for me. It was more just the um, the inundation that where you can't leave the age of spectacles. You can't get away from it. And what is that doing to us? And uh, in that book, Competing Spectacles, I talk more about uh, our affection for Christ as being one of the real gauges of whether we're overindulging in the world or not. And so that's what, for me, that became one of the key standards is when I show up on Sunday to church is my affections for Christ just dead? You know, am I just mouthing words to Christ-centered songs? Is a, a, a glorious sermon lost on me? Mm-hmm. Um, does the Lord's table do nothing to my heart? And what does that say about what I'm in, ingesting all week long? Whether it's seeking wealth, whether it's seeking new spectacles, whatever it is, this world is going to dull our affections when we're misusing our attention. And so that was kind of the conclusion for me in competing spectacles is that there's really a time in all of our lives to do a digital detox, to step away from the good gifts that God gives us to say those good gifts are not my God. Uh, God is my God. And in him, I find my acceptance. I find my approval. I find my joy. I find my hope. And that for me has always been a part of my life. I work online, but I take time away from uh, social media. I have to, um, in order to sustain just my own affections, my own, you know, uh, concentration so I can read books and things like that. It's just, it's always going to be helpful to step away from it. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to your point, maybe one great way for Christians to engage is to become leaders in some of these spaces. Um, You actually talk about in the book, and again, for those uh, listening, the book is God, Technology, and the Christian Life. We're talking to Tony Renke. Um, You use the example of of Francis Collins, who many people didn't even know who this dude was until COVID. Um, But you talk about his work on the Human Genome Project and talk about why that's a good example um, of a takeaway for us of technology that honors God. Yeah, he he and his team uh, mapped out the, the human genome. And so then creating sort of the categories by which we can now um, categorize diseases and start to use genetic medicine. And so it's probably the, the biggest, most uh, significant uh, uh, innovation discovery of humankind in the past 50 years. It just it changes everything. Um, and he's a Christian. He's on the leading edge of this as a geneticist. And I think he's a, a surgeon as well. I mean, just an incredible brain. Um, that doesn't mean that most innovators are going to be Christians. In fact, I think the storyline of the Bible tells us that most, most really great innovators in the world, the kind of Elon Musk's, the Steve Jobs, they're not going to be believers. And we get that from Genesis chapter four as we trace out uh, Cain's lineage. And the Bible puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that Cain's great-great-grandchildren are sort of the the, the chief innovators uh, at the beginning of humanity. And I think that's a paradigm for us today. So Silicon Valley is going to be populated with lots of brilliant people who are not Christians. My call in this book, this new book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is dedicated uh, to every Christian who lives inside a demanding and expensive tech center who's unselfishly building churches and influencing the world's most powerful industries for good. So that's what this book, I wrote this book for you. If that's you out there, if you want to 
to go into Silicon Valley, you want to go into a tech center, help build churches and, and use your influence for good in industry. This book is for you. This is why I wrote it. And so there's a lot to say, uh, but, but um, this book, I hope, is a starting point for young Christians who are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and can you give us a little picture of that? Because, you know, not maybe not all of us are, you know, we're saying, oh, okay, well, I don't live in San Jose or Mountain View or whatever. So that's not me. But the fact is, anyone, you know, working in most industries today is going to be in this space. And certainly, you know, we're going to know, we're going to know Google, we're going to know a lot of these platforms and, and whatnot. But what, okay, for that person who's very aspirational to like, yep. oh my goodness, my life is tied to tech, maybe this is my entire job, maybe this, but but I want real relationships too. And don't tell me, Tony, that all of a sudden my church experience is going to be done on a screen or whatever. What's the balance between finding heart connections with people, finding FaceTime with people, while also realizing that technology is going to be so beneficial to making things happen. Yeah, I think the best best way to start is to realize that our embodied relationship, our face-to-face relationship is very key, very important in the local church. We have baptisms, we have the Lord's table, we have very embodied practices. And then digital media extends those relationships. So I have a face-to-face relationship with uh, a lot of friends, but uh, I can be more in touch with them through texting. And so we're constantly texting our messaging back and forth, which is an extension of that relationship that's built on the embodied relationship that we have. Um, now, there are a lot of people who build relationships through gaming. So they're doing like online evangelism. That's a big thing. There's a whole group of people, a huge group of people who, you know, are on they're gaming for hours at a time. And they're seeking intentional ways to share the gospel with uh, non-Christians that they that they are playing with. And so there's a lot of different ways in which we can approach others, uh, but none of it is going to replace that face-to-face embodied relationship that really comprises the heart of the local church body. That's irreplaceable. Well, kind of as we as we finish out here, um, one random weird question I had as I was going through the book, because I know you you yeah. talk through this a little bit, is the whole concept of space. I mean, and this is where a lot of older Christians will be like, um, why are we trying to go into space, people? We're going <laughs> to do that when we see Christ, you know, when he returns, yeah. whatever. But what's, what's the value of that? What should the Christian's conversation be around that? I mean, again, because many people are going to say, uh, Tony, we need to concern ourselves with the people in this world and stop looking for new ones. I mean, go ahead and just give your your riff on that thoughts. I love Job 28. And Job 28 is interesting because it's all about a miner, uh, uh, like someone who goes Hmm. underground to try and find jewels. So it's a it's space exploration, but in the other direction. And it's basically (laughs) raises the same questions. Like, why would you go 100 feet underground? You know, mm-hmm. and so Job 28 is like a biblical category for space exploration. Namely, um, this entire universe is given to us as a gift by God, and He has put materials in it for us to find and to cultivate and to create new things like the smartphone. The smartphone is 60 elements taken from the ground, uh, refined, condensed, put into a smartphone. It was all there in the periodic table from the beginning of time. And so God has given us this rich creation. And I don't think it's limited to just what we can access here on earth. I think God has also given us materials on the moon. He's given us materials in outer space. And so as we go out, as we discover, as we explore, we're going to find new things, maybe new elements on Mars that will make our computers faster. Maybe we'll live on Mars. Who knows? But I think there's this, there's something uh, in us that wants to engage with the creation that God has given us to learn what it can do, learn what we can do with 
with it. And that honors God. That's fundamentally what I'm arguing in, in this book is that God didn't booby trap this creation and say, oh, you better not find that. You better not find genetics. You better not discover nuclear power. That's not how it works. He gave us this creation to explore as a sandbox of his generosity. And when we discover and we learn and we we grow in our knowledge of this, uh, this creation, for us as Christians, our worship grows because we see the creator behind it all, his generosity and giving us all the material things that we enjoy, the electricity, the homes, the highways, the crypto, the banking system, the medical innovation that we rely on to live. Everything is a gift from God that he's given us through human innovators. And if we can trace our gratitude back to him and to say, thank you, God, for the material universe you've given us, I think that's where we want to end up. And that includes space travel. Yeah. Well, and again, the the book outlines such uh, in in such a great way the the potential and the limitations of big tech. And folks, we've been talking about God, technology, and the Christian life. My guest is Tony Rinke, and um, in actually in the book, I mean, we we only had time to scratch the surface, but he actually walks through a bunch of both myths and then ethical convictions uh, that will help you kind of get your head around some of this. And you all, you know, everyone always thinks that we've done all we can do in technology and innovation. But think again, y'all. I mean, I know y'all are young, but just give this uh, another, I was going to say another 20 years, give it another uh, 20 (laughs) days and we'll see something different going on. So, um, well, folks, we want to actually make a copy of this book available to you um, for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So you know that we do this sometimes with the resources that we love here at Boundless. And so if you go to boundless.org, you can even search for 746. That's this week's show. Uh, You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Give a gift of any amount to Boundless, whatever you can afford. Um, we can't yet take cryptos, but we'll let you know when that happens. But um, any a gift of any amount, and we want to send a copy of Tony's book to you as our thank you to you for being part of this conversation and part of the Boundless family. And so go ahead and do that. Tony, thank you so much for your wisdom in the book and on the show today. Uh, it's really just fascinating to see what God is doing with, um, you know, again, what he has created and, uh, and allowed us to come along for the ride. Amen. Thanks, Lisa. We are the ones who sin, enslaved from within, but you save hallelujah. Redemption in your hands, and faith from blood that ran, oh Jesus, your truth. Simply put your life
folks, here we are uh, finishing out the show with our inbox and Jenny Coffey, our counselor here at Focus, is back. Hey, Jenny. Hi. Hello. All right. It's not that I only give you questions from females, but um, I know you answered <laughs> okay. our question last week yes. and uh, you're back uh, for this week's question. I do really appreciate it. And uh, this is kind of another, I mean, it's like the friendship quagmire. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week we had kind of the, you know... Uh, love triangle quagmire. And this one is kind of the honest feedback quagmire. So let me go ahead and read what our listener has to say. She says, my best friend's currently in a relationship with a guy she's fallen for in the past couple of years, but I'm not so sure about him. He doesn't seem to be pursuing my friend very well, and he's not as chivalrous or sacrificial for her as he should be. As an example, he's so particular about his car. When they go on long trips to visit her family, he insists that she drive. Most of the time, they seem to just be immature around each other, and I see no signs of commitment from either of them as they only see each other when it's convenient. She's expressed some desire to break up in the past, but nothing has changed. I really care about my friend, and I hate to see her end up with the wrong guy. Any advice? Yeah, I think first of all, the question would be, what does she hope to get out of this conversation? Mm -hmm. Because there's an element of the whole point of the dating process is to kind of figure some of these things out, and there's not really a time frame on that. Mm -hmm. Now, it does sound like this has been somewhat of a longer-term relationship. You know, Mm -hmm. we we don't want to encourage people to have seven, 10 year dating spans, you know, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, I would, if I had this listener in front of me kind of ask, are the expectations that she's putting on her, the expectations she would have for her own dating. Mm -hmm. So the expectations she's putting on the friend, are those her expectations? Mm -hmm. Are they the friend's expectations? So anytime there's a question with should in there, And so she says he's not as chivalrous as he should be. Mm -hmm. I always sit back and say, like, compared to what? Mm -hmm. What are we comparing to? Mm -hmm. And so I think going into any conversation first by sitting back and saying, what's the motivation here? What am I hoping to get out of this conversation? And what am I trying to save her from? And is some of this, like, projection of my own needs and desires onto her? Mm -hmm. Or is this truly I know her and I've seen her change and there's some concerns, some red flags, those Mm -hmm. types of things? But, I mean, the car example is a great one because it does show, in my opinion, kind of a level of potential selfishness or immaturity. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of, is this dating for the purpose of figuring out who you want to marry? You guys just having fun together, Um, which is really kind of a a broader quagmire, as you say, as far as the Christian -hmm. Christian community and what we're (laughs) kind of called to Mm -hmm. inside that dating space. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought when I read this, my first thought was, okay, is she irritated for her friend or is she just irritated because this irritates her? Like yes, watching right. this scenario, uh-huh. you know, and it could be, I mean, there, there are friends that I've had that date people that I'm super irritated by it and they're just like way into this person. Right. <laughs> so it is kind of a weird, but she does say that she, her friend has talked about breaking up with this guy in the right. past. So yes, there could be a conversation around like, do you just think this is like your last chance at a guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, that that has to be done very much within the context of friendship to be kind yes. in that and not judgy and not come off as like the jealous friend mm-hmm. who is just picking at it because she wishes she were in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it does require some care. But um, and you, you know, listener, you do say I really care about my friend. And so you might need to pray about that and figure out like, what does it look like to say to say something if I need to say something, um, but give her space to be the person who makes the decision. Kind of. Right. And on the other side of the coin, you know, if it's something where she's really seeming more infatuated than mm-hmm. to kind of 
want to learn more like what is it that you love about him what mm -hmm. is it that really connects you to him or draws you to him because there might be these things because she's not dating him mm -hmm. that she doesn't see she just kind of sees these off color type of things that she doesn't really appreciate but the friend hopefully is with him for a reason so kind of leaning into that and saying talk to me about what you love so much about him yeah. and and trying to hear some of those things and getting the friend the best friend in this scenario to speak to some of those things out loud, it might get her to a point of thinking about where she's at with it if she's kind of on the fence because it's like, well, what do I mm -hmm. like about him? Without mm -hmm. That's a way to do it without being super confrontational yeah. um, in an awkward way. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much, Jenny, for yes, weighing in for on that. Me. That's Hopefully it will give her food for thought. Okay, folks, uh, that is it for this week's show. As I often say here on the show, we do want to hear from you and we love hearing from you. I mean, I feel like the Boundless people, you all are just so awesome in um, communicating with us and letting us know what you're liking, what you're up to, giving us ideas for future shows. So write to us at editor at boundless.org or you can hit us up in the DMs on Instagram or find us on Facebook. Um, but do let us know, maybe let us know what your summer plans are since we are heading into uh, summer here pretty soon and so um, again just let us know you're out there make sure that you make some summer plans that maybe include a visit to us too that'd be really fun um, otherwise we will see you around next week I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org Focus on the family In light of the Supreme Court's recent decision on abortion, are you ready for what comes next? And how should we respond as emotions run high? As Christians, we need to be ready. Focus on the Family can help you prepare. Join us every Monday to hear inspiring stories from people who faced their own pro-life moments and experienced God's love. To learn more, go to FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Seize Your Moment. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash Seize Your Moment.